Justin here, but big red button. Yeah, big red button. <laughs> Josh unfortunately has a real job, which uh, is always awkward and, and annoying. Um, but uh, he'll join us next episode. Meanwhile, you are hunting down new work. Yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. I don't want to say anything about it just okay. yet. But yeah, we'll we'll wait on it. But I'm like Apple. I, I play. I, I love my secrecy when it comes to unannounced deals or products or whatever. That's fine. It builds anticipation. It's better that way. <laughs> hey, speaking of talking though, we, uh, we last episode we sort of opened up our formerly private Slack channel to everybody, and uh, the response so far has been kind of crazy. We've we've got a bunch of people filing in. We're getting new people requesting invites every day, and uh, you know we're still finding our footing as far as how to organize it and everything. But I think it's kind of amazing how many people listen to the show and uh, what what interesting people they are. Lots of familiar faces showing up. Um, so if you haven't signed up yet, by all means do, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, come, come join us. We're, we're interesting to talk to <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah. So over time, I think we're going to develop, uh, you know, different channels. We might run little contests. We'll see. But for now, I'm just glad that we've opened the doors and that people are actually coming in. Yeah. And the response so far has been blowing my mind really. Uh, I mean, I, I knew we had regular listeners. I didn't know we had uh, s- such great listeners necessarily because some of them uh, we knew, you know, from social media and the like. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But but I've been blown away by the response and so many people, so many cool people joining in and, and, and actively participating in the conversation, which is what we wanted from the beginning. So it looks like things are working out. And like you said, we're going to definitely keep playing with uh, with the format. We're going to try new things to try and improve the the experience but we're going to be cautious because what we don't we don't want to take it too far uh and we we want to try and avoid any issues where things get out get out of control maybe so yeah bear with us for a little longer uh we're still trying things we're still trying to improve and uh, by all means join join the channel and stick around it's it's an interesting conversation so i think you'll enjoy it yeah it's also a great way to give us it's a great way to give us your feedback directly because that's literally where we get all of our ideas and where we talk about things. So it's very direct. Um, also, this has been a like strangely rich week for news. I don't really know why, but all of a sudden uh, I was I was cruising through my feeds earlier this week and it was like news item after news item from different sources that was of direct interest to photographers. So um, we've kind of gathered a bunch of stuff that we want to go over today. Um, and I think maybe we should start with the GH5? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I feel like I time jumped like six months into the future because when I started taking a look at the news, I've been mostly offline for the past week or so, but when I when I went back into the internet and started trying and trying to catch up, there was just so much stuff that I, I, I felt like this, it's not all of this could have happened in the past week. Like it's impossible, but yeah, it looks like companies have been busy. Yeah, it's crazy. So um, the GH5, I mean, we we knew that the GH5 was um, coming for months now. It was sort of pre-announced at Photokina, but um, Panasonic told us almost nothing about it. Uh, it, it was yeah. basically they had a prototype. And I, you, did you end up seeing it when you went there? No, no, you you couldn't see it. They they wouldn't let anyone touch it or or see it. Or, I mean, it was like a mock-up, like a, right. But it wasn't real. There, there were no real technological guts inside. It was Got just, it sort of a rough estimate of the form factor and the size and everything. Yeah. But even the, the they, they went out of their way to specifically tell us that even the control layout wasn't final. Like there's, they were still working on it. So really, I mean, it's impressive the amount of work they've got done in the past three weeks, three months, because it's been, yeah, yeah, just a little over three months. And uh, from to, to go from barely a product to finished uh, finished version in just three months, it's impressive. Yeah, I almost wonder if um, the reason they were being so coy three months ago is not because they didn't have a like a working thing, but because they were still deciding on what stuff they could get working uh, well enough. Um, like, I don't think that the control layout and stuff like that meaningfully changed. I think it was probably a matter of, of uh, adjusting the, the firmware capabilities. But um, in any case, the the resulting camera is ridiculously powerful. I I'm so impressed. Yeah. I uh, I was going over the spec sheet when they when they first you know unveiled the full thing and going through my list of um, wants in my head, and it's just remarkable. Like they've they've basically taken everything that I wanted them to improve upon with the GH4 
and improved upon it in in a meaningful way. So I I mean we'll we'll just sort of cruise through the stuff that I'm most excited about. So first of all, they have um, improved the weather sealing. So that's that's a big plus for those of us shooting out, uh, outdoors and especially in like run and gun situations where it's just good to have that peace of mind that you don't really have to worry as much if it starts to rain or anything like that. Um, you know, not having a rain cover keeps the uh, keeps the kit lighter. And that's part of the advantage of, of shooting mirrorless video to begin with. So very much appreciate that. Um, they've gotten rid of the flash, the little onboard flash that used to be there, which is, you know, good because no one really used it. Yeah, and, and it's not really a big deal. I mean, if you're serious about your lighting, you're like you said, you're not using it anyway. So Exactly, exactly. And, and especially for video, it's just not, you know, it's not relevant at all. Right. And I feel like the GH5, while it is also, uh, you know, the, it is also a, a camera, right? You, you can take photos with it. Um, it's very clearly positioned towards uh, videographers like that. This is clearly the target audience. It's clearly the um, the area where they've put the most effort in. It's kind of the opposite of Fuji, actually. You know, like Fuji also does video, but photography is clearly the focus. And the the Panasonic GH5 series or GH series rather is uh, is like the polar opposite. They do photos, but obviously it's it's video focused. Yeah, it's a videographer's tool, and yeah. they have they do have the GX series which is their more photography-oriented yeah. uh, lineup of cameras. I wouldn't say it's at quite at the same level because they are not as professional-oriented, perhaps, but they are really nice cameras, too. Yeah, Panasonic does good work. And so the GH5, uh, GH5 is bigger. That's one other thing that's changed. I think it's uh, quite a bit bigger, actually. It's like 14% larger, um, which I don't mind. Um, I think that it's nice to have a little bit of heft, especially if you're shooting handheld. Right. Um, and I look forward to actually seeing how that additional weight and size is distributed in person. Uh, like to see if it's a, a deeper grip or just a slightly like thicker body or whatever it is. It's interesting though, because the GH4 was already pretty big for, for a Micro Four Thirds camera. I yeah. mean, it was definitely going for that DSLR look. Yeah. But not just the look, like the ergonomics too. Yeah, 100%. And it's it's got a very comfortable grip. I know many people who enjoyed that, yeah. Yeah, it's very, very comfortable. It's uh, it's it's funny actually picking it up. It's it's more comfortable than a lot of the other mirrorless options. It's just not that good for photography. So that's, right. you know, that's, that's the downside. But um, they also put in a new processor and new sensor. Uh, this is the, they say it's a brand new 20 megapixel sensor, but I'm a little skeptical. I'm a little skeptical of how different it is from the other, you know, like coincidentally all micro four thirds is now on a 20 megapixel sensor. So I'm, I'm not sure how different it is, but they have a different imaging pipeline for certain. It's a different processor. Um, and they've got a few very interesting technologies that they're using to, uh, to optimize the capture of detail specifically. So for one thing, they've removed the optical low pass filter, which I always appreciate because it's easier to get rid of moiré in Lightroom than it is to recover detail that was not initially captured. Um, but they're also doing something on the processing end. Uh, I forget the marketing term that they used for it, but but apparently it's, it's much better at capturing uh, fine details and that applies to video and photos. So that's, that's pretty great. High precision multi-process noise reduction. That's what I'm looking at uh, on the specs page. Wow. Okay. <laughs> it's a weird, it's a very weird marketing term. I, I really definitely wouldn't have called it this, but. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. No. So see, I'm looking at the other one. Multi-pixel luminance generation. Oh, yeah. There that's you go. It. That's, that's it. the You're one. Right. You're it's right. A, so it's a new demosaicing algorithm uh, that's looking at a larger area of pixels um, than previously. So it's, it's basically just something that allows it to resolve more detail. Hopefully that is uh, a significant enough change that it's visible in, uh, in practice as well. Although I will say that even to this day, the GH4's footage, especially in 4k is noticeably sharper than other, like for example, the, um, the new EM1 Mark II, I was just watching a video the other day, uh, where someone was comparing the, uh, 4k video output from between the new EM1 and the GH4 and uh, the stabilization was obviously, you know, you can't compare because the GH4 isn't stabilized, but um, the GH4 footage was noticeably sharper. Right. Uh, even to this day, even with a, you know, 16 megapixel sensor. So that's that's pretty impressive. Do you think the, the new 5-axis image stabilization in the GH5 will make stabilization rigs 
uh, unnecessary or is it just a nice feature to have on top of that? No, I mean, that's, that's never, um, it's never a replacement for a proper gimbal, but it right. is a very, very convenient thing, especially for those situations where you can't fit in with a gimbal or um, for, for more casual use where you're not in a professional setting, you just want, you know, decent snapshot style video. Um, it's going to look a lot better with that stabilization present. And they've they've brought in, you know, the five axis stabilization, but it's also the uh, the synchronized uh, stabilization that's going to work with um, any of Panasonic or Olympus's. Well, maybe not Olympus's yet, but Panasonic's lenses that have um, lens based stabilization. Yeah. So that will theoretically give you like five stops worth of uh of additional playroom there, which is, you know, again, very impressive. It's, it's basically the same kind of um, technology that we've seen for years now in the Olympus bodies and in the Sony bodies, but finally Panasonic has brought it to, uh, to the GH series, which is, that was like one of the big things that I was hoping for. And here it is. So big, big kudos to them for that. Yeah. Well, well done. That was an excellent, excellent work. Yeah. Uh, they've also, tossed in like way, way more autofocus points and they've refined their depth from defocus autofocus technology, um, which should be good for people who use autofocus. Um, I, I feel like that's more relevant to the photography side of things than video because typically the videographers that I know just manually focus things. Right. Um, but still it's, it's good to, it's good to have that. Um, and hopefully the, um, one of the things like, for, for example, in an ideal world, we would all keep our cameras in video mode on continuous autofocus mode. And that way, um, all of the little focus adjustments are just happening automatically. But the problem is that for most cameras that, that offer that, um, they'll lock focus and then periodically they will fall out of focus and then hunt again as if they're checking, you know, to make sure that they're still in focus. But if that happens mid shot, obviously it looks terrible. Um, and it's, it's got this little home video look to it. So that's, yeah. <laughs> that's why most people avoid it because you, you can't control it, right? The camera just spontaneously decides that it needs to, uh, to work on that. So I'm still waiting for a camera to have an algorithm that doesn't do that, right? Like that's, that's confident enough that it's acquired focus and holds on to it and doesn't just spontaneously decide that it needs to to check every once in a while. Uh, so I look forward to testing that. I think it's also telling that all professional cinema lenses are basically manual focus, like actual mechanical manual focus. Exactly. Because you, you use these, uh, uh, I don't know how they're called, like the rings, like the, the rings with teeth on them that you sort of, they act like cogs in a, yeah. In yeah, a way. It's a, that's yeah. how you pull focus with, mm -hmm. a, with a mechanism. And, and that's, I mean... It makes sense for two reasons. One, that's what videographers have used for a really long time. That's what they know how to use. Uh, but it's also a much more precise way of, of ensuring you get focus right every time. So I, I'm, I have no doubts that uh, continuous autofocus for video recording will become viable in the near to mid future, I would say. Uh, but today we're still not there. So well, it, well, it's nice that they're working to improve them, to improve it. It's, it's also, I mean, I think most people are going to continue using manual focus for the time being, at least. Yeah, certainly in the professional realm, like you said, there, there's a reason that all the cinema lenses are, are uh, mechanical and manual focus only. Um, but they've also upgraded the EVF significantly. It's, it's high resolution. It's uh, better magnification. Um, but really, to me, the most impressive part of this whole thing is what they've managed to do in terms of uh, firmware and image quality um, and, and recording options. So one of the things that I complained about with the GH4 is that you can only record um, 422, uh, sorry, 422-8-bit no, footage internally. Right. Um, but if you're doing a lot of color grading in post-production, you want 10-bit footage because it gives you a little bit of extra leeway in terms of pushing and pulling colors and, and making sure you've got more exposure uh, information to play with. So um, previously, and what we've been doing with the GH4 is you would have to connect an HDMI cable and run the output to an external recorder. And then you can't record internally while you're doing that, but you sort of record on the external thing instead. And that's how you get 10-bit footage out of the GH4, right. which is fine, but it means that you've got this additional piece of gear that's sort of attached somehow or you know it's it's just an it makes the kit bigger and more difficult to work with especially if you're trying to record with a gimbal because generally there's no easy way to mount it to the gimbal uh, depending on which one you're using and then it just it becomes a nightmare 
Um, and even like this is the, the thing that I like about it is that clearly they have listened and they've watched how people use their camera because even something like the connection to an external recorder, which is still going to be necessary for certain uh, for certain things, um, but they've changed the port itself. So you no longer have to have a converter from micro USB or mini USB to uh, sorry, mini HDMI to uh, HDMI. They now just have a full-size HDMI port, which is obviously much better. Um, but anyway, the the thing that they've, the, the biggest advancement is that you can now record 422 10-bit footage at 60 frames per second. Um, and you can do 10-bit footage up to, I think, 30 frames per second or something like that internally, which is yeah perfect. It means that for, for the vast majority of run and gun shooting scenarios, you're getting the best footage possible, but you don't need any extra equipment for it. It's just right there in the camera. There's no recording limits. It just keeps going until you run out of space on the card, which is unbelievable. That's just, that is perfect. That's impressive. And that might explain the bigger size of the camera too, because part of the problem with recording 4K at such high bit rates and with so much detail is that the cameras tend to overheat. Yeah. So perhaps they intentionally made it bigger so that there's more room to dissipate all that extra heat that's that the camera is generating so it's a bold move and i i I definitely think they're on they're onto something here yeah and they they basically still have an option between the the dci 4k and the standard you know uh, 3840 version of 4k um and the cutoff basically is that if you're um uh, if you need 60 frames per second, that's where you need to um, either record externally or you're looking at 8-bit 420 footage instead of 422 10-bit. So that's the that's where the limitation lies. But again, they've moved the they've shifted things such that for the vast majority of cases, you've got everything you need, and they've done things like improved the maximum um, frame rate for 1080 footage, so you can now get better slow motion. And in combination with the additional detail that the sensor supposedly pulls out, you might be able to intercut that footage with the 4K footage um, without much you know, noticeable degradation, especially if your final delivery is 1080 rather than 4K. Right, that makes sense. So there's a lot of, uh, lot of amazing stuff like that. The footage in general is now uh, 150 megabits per second as opposed to the 100 that it used to be. And there's a rumor that there's another firmware update coming later in the year that's going to give you an option to actually output, uh, at, I think, something like 400 Wow, uh, megabits per second, which is very rich footage for a consumer camera. That's that's that would be uh, amazing to work with um, in in post production. So again, just lots of lots of um, building on what they already did well, and just addressing the shortcomings that people have encountered uh, in trying to use the GH4 in a professional setting. The GH5 basically covers uh, just about everything. There's a separate um, I don't know what to call it. There's like an audio attachment as well for people that don't want to have a separate um, audio recording unit like the H6 from Zoom or whatever, you know, is popular for uh, for, for sort of mid-range audio stuff. You can now uh, have one that's built specifically for the GH5. Um, there's a grip for it. It's just, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. It's all the buzz and whistles you could possibly want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, that I was just thinking that this camera announcement is particularly embarrassing for Canon because if Panasonic has managed to get such clean footage uh, at, at a bit rate that is like 100 megabits per second, 150, sorry. Uh, when you compare that with Canon's ridiculous 4K codec for the 5D Mark IV, I, I think you only get two minutes of video out of a, a gigabit or something like that. It's it's ridiculous. It takes an, enor- uh, an enormous amount of, of space to record video in 4k with that camera and i don't know what they were thinking to be honest yeah this this camera really makes the uh the 5d mark IV look like uh look like a misstep if for no other reason than like you said the, the codec is so much less useful like if if the footage was on par it would still be frustrating because the footage coming out of the gh5 is so much easier to work with but right uh yeah it's it's a strange it's a strange thing but i'm, I'm hoping that this lights a fire under um, Sony's bum and Canon's and all the rest and, and really gets them uh, working on um, building out their video features to compete because as of right now once the GH5 hits the market there's really no competition for portable mirrorless video 
to this. Like, it's just, that's, that's it. I mean, you, you basically have this and then you step up to the black magic, um, cinema and production cameras, but those, uh, those have their own quirks that come with it. So it's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. The bar, the bar is definitely high for the next iteration of the Sony a7S, which is Sony's traditionally Sony's camera that is traditionally aimed at videographers rather than photographers. So I'm, I'm very curious to see what they, what they do later in the year. Yeah. Cause let's not kid ourselves. The a7S Mark three or whatever it's going to be named is probably two to three months away from being announced, if not yeah. less. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting to see how they react to this announcement for sure. Yeah. I mean, Sony has some insider information because I would bet, uh, I don't know how much, but I would bet quite a bit of money that the sensor inside this GH5 is actually made by Sony. Yeah, which is the case for most cameras. Yeah. Right. So so they know what the, the sensor is capable of and that kind of informs their their understanding of what Panasonic may be trying to do with the camera. Uh, so they, they kind of have, they have an unfair advantage in that sense. So I'm excited. I'm excited to see how they use that information and if they manage to one-up Panasonic in this in this regard. It's going to be an interesting year. It, it will be because last generation, basically, um, a lot of videographers were deciding between the A7S Mark II and the GH4. And it was it was quite a, you know, the, the battle was, was less clear-cut than one might expect because um, the A7S is without a question better at low-light um, videography like that's that is really where it shines um, but the footage coming out of the GH4 uh, is really really good so it, it comes down to a matter of preference um, whether you prefer the ergonomics and the the lens ecosystem and things like that and in many cases that's what it came down to for videographers who did not need the incredible low light performance right um, so it will be interesting because I'm like it, theoretically, given that advantage, we should expect that the A7S Mark III will leapfrog the GH5 and be some complete, you know, it'll it'll best it on all fronts, but it might be the same as last generation where that's not quite the case and they're both competitive and, you know, it'll come down to, uh, right. to, to preference. So either way, um, if you are currently, uh, you know, in the mirrorless um, professional video market, um, this is one hell of a contender and I can't wait to get my hands on one. Yeah, and uh, I want to just make a special comment about the dual SD card slot, which the GS5 does have. Yeah, of course it has that uh, too. <laughs> that, makes, that makes Sony the only remaining uh, high-end manufacturer who doesn't offer uh, dual SD card slots on their, on their high-end cameras. True. So I just hope that they... <laughs> They take the message, and <laughs> yeah, I I would I would think it's inevitable at this point. They they must add it in the next generation of A7 bodies. Yeah, and I would even go so far as to say that the A6500 definitely should have had it by now. Yes, yeah, it should have had it. The other thing, it's interesting. Speaking of the dual card slots, I think this is the first time I've seen a camera where the uh, card slots are hot swappable. You can actually uh, be recording and swap out the full card while you're still recording with the camera on. And I don't think you can do that with any other body that I'm aware of uh, in like in this same class. Wow, but how would, how would you merge the files later? Uh, I assume that it it snips them and automatically um, resumes onto the next card if if you're still recording when it crosses crosses the threshold. That's generally what happens. Wow. Um, and then you just you stitch them back together in uh, Final Cut or your editor of choice. So it's not the end of the world, but it is a very cool feature. Uh, so if you've got it on on mains power instead of running off of battery, you could theoretically just record forever. You know, just keep swapping cards right. until you're done. So that's that's very good. It's, I mean, it's I think there's going to be relatively few situations where you need that much recording time. But then again, sometimes you you know if you're shooting an event that uh, that is very long and there's no real breaks, then I can definitely see that coming in very handy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. Absolutely. Especially if you've got smaller cards. So anyway, so that's, uh, that's the GH5. Uh, like I said, can't wait to get my hands on one. Literally, if you go to the spec sheet, like there's a ton of things that we haven't even mentioned. This, this camera has just about everything. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very impressive. So congratulations to Panasonic for a very impressive release. Yeah. And this continues the trend that these high-end features are finally making their way across multiple manufacturers and multiple systems. So that makes me hopeful that the future of, of the industry is bright. Yeah. Now we have pretty cool EVFs across every system. We have in-body image stabilization across many systems as well. We have dualistic card slots. We have all these nice features that used to be that used to be only in one camera or two cameras. Now they're finally becoming mainstream. And I'm excited about that. 
yeah next step batteries bigger batteries that's the that's yeah. the goal yeah <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, so the next the next piece of news, and this is one that I almost hesitate to call it news because we're, it's not. I don't think it's 100% confirmed yet. But uh, the the headlines have been saying that uh, DJI, the famous drone and gimbal making company from China, uh, now owns Hasselblad, uh, and Hasselblad is well known as a uh, sort of one of the big names in in the classic uh, photography space. And you know nowadays they make medium format cameras like the X1D. Um, so they're, they're, it's quite a powerful brand. Oh yeah. Uh, and DJI was previously a uh, a shareholder. So you know, I, I think that what's happened is essentially just that they've bought more shares. So now they are the majority owner. Um, even so, that's definitely a big vote of confidence on their part, and it makes me think that they they probably have um, big plans for uh, cooperation between uh, you know, like taking the incredible wealth of. Uh, imaging technology expertise that Hasselblad has and applying it to the very interesting constraints of drone videography, drone photography, and uh, and gimbals. So I, I can't wait to see what they're doing with this uh, with this move. But if it is true, that's it's quite a, an unexpected thing. Yeah, definitely. I, I didn't see this one coming at all, uh, especially because Hasselblad has a very similar reputation to Leica, for example. It's a very, very high-end brand then they value that image like it's sort of like when you're going to buy a luxury car and you buy a ferrari it's like it's the same the same thinking right they they yeah there's a certain amount of uh of cachet that that goes with the name yeah and uh they well their medium format cameras are just ridiculously expensive some somewhere in the twenty twenty thousand dollar range or something like that right so these are extremely high-end uh, professional tools and I wonder if this purchase, this acquisition, is a sign that they're feeling heat, uh, you know, from the lower end. Because I think all the innovation is happening in the smaller sensor uh, segments. I haven't really paid much attention, but I don't remember seeing any revolutions uh, in medium format photography and much less in large large format, of course. So that makes me think that as the bottom the bottom part of the industry gets better and better and better, the reasons to keep being loyal to medium format and, and spending the, those ridiculous amounts on a high-end camera are becoming sort of blurrier over time. Yeah, and the market itself is changing to the point where the, the kinds of buyers who uh, appreciate the benefits of medium format, and I mean buyers in the sense of, of clients, not photographers, uh, th- that group of people is also getting smaller and smaller. So if your main uh, source of income right now is is making medium format um, imaging technology, I think that you would definitely be feeling threatened and you'd be looking for ways to consolidate and to uh, set yourself up for, um, you know, a healthy income in the future. And this might be basically that on Hasselblad's part. Yeah. It's also worth saying that Hasselblad as a, as a company, like the, the company as we know it today is really not, it doesn't have that much in common with the, uh, with the, the people who initially gave that brand its value like it is a it is a brand kind of like polaroid that now has been sold and licensed and and it's it's different people behind it but i agree with you that when when you think of hasselblad it's very similar to to leica in the sense that it is a it's one of the most prestigious companies in the industry so this is i suppose you can take it as uh, uh devaluing their brand to some extent but i also see it as a savvy business move on both sides. Yeah, definitely. Um, which is why I'm I'm, you know, net positive reaction to it. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm I'm hopeful, but I wonder if this is a signal of a change in direction for the company, like maybe they're going to become more aware that they cannot survive exclusively off the high end of the market. Yeah. And 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 it's interesting to see what they're going to do and even the their latest product announcement, the X1D, the first medium format mirrorless camera to hit the market. Uh that's a very clear sign. It's like half the price of their of their other more popular systems. So this is a very clear attempt uh, to protect themselves from this uh, sort of cannibalization that's happening from below. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see that they're aware of the threat and that they're taking steps to better, to be better prepared to fight it because definitely this, this acquisition is going to infuse some serious money into the company. Yeah. And uh, and I'm hopeful to see what they do with it, with the added resources. And if they start making products that are aimed at more mainstream consumers or professionals even, but not ex- not exclusively at ridiculously high-end 
high fashion photographers or something like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, then who knows? Maybe we'll be able to shoot with a Hasselblad camera one day, not too far from from today. And I would like that. Yeah. No kidding. So I, um, <laughs> it's also. I mean, I'm I'm thinking of the other medium format players and uh, people like uh, Phase One, for instance, have. Uh, have capture one as as a sort of side business right. that I think is is helping them become uh, sustainable because that cap- capture one is targeted not just at medium format users it's it's kind of like the altern the main alternative to Lightroom essentially that's that's yes. the, the one and only that um, most people know about you know in, in any I mean nowadays we we talk about Affinity we talk about you know a bunch of other ones that have shown up but in terms of market share and and mind share more importantly I think that capture one is the only real rival at this point. So that gives phase one, um, it, it puts them in a good position because it means that even though their medium format business is probably, you know, suffering from the same issues that we just described, they have something else that they can, you know, build on and, and sort of sustain themselves with. So maybe this is Hasselblad's equivalent. Yeah, it makes sense. It certainly makes sense. So we'll see. I mean, I think it's still a ways away that we're going to see the effects of this acquisition, but yeah. um, we'll have to pay attention to what they're doing and we'll report back if we learn if we learn anything new. Yeah, I mean, as we're recording this, I don't think that it's even been officially announced by either party. This is just kind of a, a well-substantiated rumor, so it may turn out to be wrong, but I, I think that it's probably true. And either way, like you said, we'll we'll report back if we find more insightful information that pops up in the coming weeks. Okay, so... Right now in 2017, Kodak, the most popular film manufacturer, arguably together with perhaps Fuji, uh, they're announcing that they're bringing back one of their most well-known, most loved classic film stocks of all time, which is Ektachrome. This this film was so popular and still is so popular that many, many people try to find expired batches of this film and they buy it in bulk and they keep it in the freezer. And it's like stockpiling for when it eventually eventually runs out. Uh, but now it looks like it's never going to run out because they are bringing it back. They're, 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 they're announcing that they're bringing it back into production, which is just mind-blowing. And if, and if you're a film lover like I, like I am, I think this is fantastic news. Yeah. And it's cool because the way that they've announced it is basically saying that, look, this is an experiment. We know this is one of our most popular, um, but it may be the first of several that we bring back if it goes well, like if, if it does actually sell in whatever numbers they need to justify uh, continuing production. And that's cool because it means that not only is their confidence level in the future of film photography quite high, but it's also a signal to film photographers that this isn't just some one-off thing. Like they can vote with their wallet and literally influence the future of uh, of film production in in this context, certainly for, for Kodak anyway. But I, I bet you that uh, Fuji and the rest of them are also keeping a very close eye on uh, how people respond to this. Yeah. And I would not be surprised if, you know, in the next few months we see some announcements that there, uh, you know, there are other companies who are bringing back, you know, formerly out of production films um, because there is a resurgence. I mean, the the hipster craze is real and there's a lot of, yeah. of people, I, I say that, uh, I don't mean to disparage because it's more than just hipsters that are shooting film, but it's, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are still shooting film or, um, taking up film photography now alongside their digital uh, or instead of, you know, it's, it's a surprisingly healthy part of the market in an age where, you know, the rat race of technology is accelerating faster and faster. So I, this makes me happy to see. I hope that, uh, I hope that they're successful enough that they continue producing it and that they can justify bringing back some of the other favorites uh, alongside it as well. Yeah, I I would, I think the odds are very good on that if, if this goes well, because I remember reading a, an excellent article on Kodak, the company, uh, a couple of years ago, and it was sort of like a postmortem, well, not exactly a postmortem because the company is still alive, but it was an analysis on how the whole film business basically crumbled over time and during the transition to digital photography. Yeah. And the problem was not just that it stopped being profitable or sustainable. The problem was that Kodak, the company, was in such a bad, uh, in such a bad shape that they needed to reduce the range of products that they made because they 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 just couldn't keep you know so many products in the market. It it was it was killing the company basically. In a way, it reminds me of what Steve Jobs found when he came back to Apple in 1997. The first thing he did was kill 
many products that were okay, they were fine, but they were not the core of the company. So Kodak sort of entered a phase where they repurposed the company, they reshaped everything, and they only kept making a handful of film stocks, which are the Portras and you know some of their the, the ones that they're still making today, basically. Right. Yeah. And but they had to kill films that were actually very popular. It was just a matter of life and death for the company, and that's why they did it. It's not that people stopped loving Ektachrome or that or whatever other film was your favorite back then. Uh, it's just a hard business decision that you have to make when you're CEO or CFO or whoever was in charge of making the call. Uh, but I'm glad they did it, and it turned out to be the right call because now it's getting back to being in good shape. And the fact that they're trying these things means they're hopeful that the company is going to make better in the future. So, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm also hopeful. I think this is great news, and I can't wait to see how it goes. And I'm definitely going to buy a few batches of of this new Ektachrome. And I was going to say you've got to. <laughs> yeah, I never played with the original to. one because my. Hipster tendencies don't get me so far as to buy expired film from the sixties <laughs> or so, uh, uh, yeah. but I'm definitely curious to try this new one for sure. Yeah, I I really like Kodak's energy. I mean, we we shouldn't forget that in this at the same time they're also reviving their Super Eight. They're making a new Super Eight camera, uh, which is kind of funny. And I also I actually saw this on Reddit. I don't know if you if you noticed it, but uh, maybe a week or two ago, someone on Reddit was posting that they'd managed to successfully develop. Uh, Kodachrome film, nice, which has been impossible uh, because the the way that you used to develop it is now no longer doable. But he apparently found a way to do it, and uh, has contacted Kodak to, to see if they'd be willing to uh, same idea as as the Ektachrome revive Kodachrome because that is one of the most beloved film stocks, uh, discontinued film stocks ever. Yeah, and. Uh, Again, that's that's something that would be really great to see if if they manage to bring it back without requiring an entirely different uh, development process, which is what made the original go away initially, if I understand correctly. It was some overly complicated way that you had to get it developed and uh, shops just stopped doing it. Yeah, once the commercial labs, once the lab that you can find on your uh, mall or your, your you know grocery store or wherever you used to develop film, if they stop doing this it's like the film stock is on on its way to towards extinction because right it's critical to a film stock's survival that you can get it developed pretty much anywhere yeah. or at least somewhere that is reasonably close to where you live and that is reasonably convenient for you to get it done uh, of course professionals and people who are very committed and very serious will still find a way to get it developed but if if it disappears from your regular life, then it stops making sense as a business. And from there to its disappearance, it's just a matter of time. Yeah. So I, I would very much like to see all of this, you know, continuing. Uh, I'm just glad that, uh, you know, for a while there, it looked like Kodak was was on its last legs and was going away as a, as a company and as a brand. I'm glad that that's not happened, um, you know, and we'll keep an eye on it. Uh, but speaking of of these sort of classic companies, some, somehow there's even more film stuff to talk about. I, I don't know what was up with this week, but um, there's a new Polaroid camera. And again, Polaroid is is no longer really a company so much as a, a brand that gets licensed around. And I forget what company makes this camera, but um, it's called the Polaroid Pop. And it's, I, I guess you could say it's like a next generation Instax style camera. Uh, so it's an instant film camera. It looks like a little... Um, like a little square thing with a with a hand strap on it. It's kind of cute looking. Yeah, it's very cute. And it uses the um, the zinc photo paper, which is similar to Instax, but the sheets are slightly bigger, and it can actually do edge to edge printing if you want, which I appreciate. Um, just you know, you get slightly bigger prints out of it. It still vaguely resembles a classic Polaroid camera, which is very very interesting because if you look at it, it it doesn't seem like it would, but there's a vibe that reminds me of them. Like it reminds me of the original Instagram icon, which was based on a Polaroid camera. And that's sort of the, oh, the you're association right. in my head. Yeah, yeah, no, it totally does. And it also, I mean, so there's there's that, but it also looks like a modern camera. It's not really a retro throwback style design, which is kind of, I think they've managed to to balance those two extremes very well. Yeah. So what sets the uh, what sets the pop apart from uh, previous instant cameras and things like the Instax lineup is that not only is it you know an instant printer, but it also is a digital camera all on its own, 
And unlike previous models, this is actually a pretty decent one. It's got a 20 megapixel sensor. It's got a dual LED flash and you can do 1080 video as well. So uh, basically you can have it shoot and record things to an internal, I think it's a micro SD, not SD card, Yeah. Um, but to its own internal storage. And then you can choose whether or not to print things uh, and it can do both at the same time or one or the other. So it just seems like a very versatile um, and, and very intelligent use of those technologies and a, and a smart way to put them together. It, to be honest with you, it almost, it, I, <laughs> when I first saw it and especially saw the, the promotional images, I almost thought that it was something that uh, Snap had made. I thought it was their, uh, you know, the spectacles would be their, their kind of casual thing and this would be their more um, broad photography focused tool because I could totally see something like that um, being something that they would make. You know, it automatically uploads to Snapchat, but you can also get the little prints. Um, anyway, it's not it's not theirs. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> it's not, but it, it would have made sense, definitely. And I wouldn't rule it out entirely that they would end up doing something like that in the future. But yeah. uh, we'll, we'll see. What I like about the, the new Pop camera is that it has, it also has Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. And the, the implication of that is that you can actually print the photos you have on your smartphone. You can just connect to the to the camera and send the photos to print, which is very nice for because sometimes uh, you know you're you're in a social situation. You print the images, and the fact that you have them on paper is an instant uh, conversation starter for one, and and it's it's really nice to see. Yeah, I mean, I adore my my Fuji uh, SP two little the, the Instax printer. Uh, so if if you can get something that's both camera and printer in one, um, that would be ideal. And also what's neat about this is it has a uh, an actual like LCD screen on the back so you can see what you're doing, which right. is one thing that the, uh, that the Instax cameras don't have at this point. The current generation just has a little optical finder. Um, so you, you know, this is, this is a, this is why I'm, I, I think of it as like a next generation of the, um, instant print technology because, uh, Obviously, instant prints are very big. They're very popular. They're super accessible to all sorts of different um, calibers of photographer and also of people who would not typically consider themselves a photographer because this is kind of a very low pressure way to uh, to take photographs and to end up with something tangible. It's not just like you know taking smartphone photos. There, you still you have something that you've produced with it, and I think that that's very exciting in a way that's difficult to describe. Uh, especially among photographers, I think there's a fair degree of skepticism about how uh, important these things are as a product category. But anyone who's actually used them, like you said, in the company of other people, of normal people in social situations, it is amazing the effect that these things have and uh, the, the the amount of appeal that lies in something as simple as just waiting for a, an instant print to develop or, or being able to hand it to someone or say, you know, print something that you shot on your phone, you know, on this little thing. And it's just, that is a really cool um, social experience. And I think that uh, Polaroid as a brand is going to have a lot of luck with this little pop because it seems like the best of several different worlds. So as long as it's priced appropriately, uh, you know, they'll probably have a hit on their hands. Yeah, I, I agree. That's what I was going to say, that we still don't know what the pricing will be. Yeah. And and uh, also, it won't be coming until the end of 2017, which is unfortunate. I, yeah, that's a shame. I was hoping we, we could get our hands on it sooner, but oh well, what are you going to do? Uh, anyway. Yeah, we'll do our best. Yeah, this is a this is a very interesting new product. It's, it's squarely within consumer territory, so you were right. This is not exactly a professional tool of any kind. But it's uh, that's the reason why I think it's going to be incredibly popular because we're all consumers. So <laughs> yeah, on some level we are. Who's who's not going to love this? Yeah, who's not going to love this? And it was uh, I th I think the first um, mention of this that I saw was in a video by a Fuji X photographer named uh, Bert Stephanie who who does very good camera reviews and is a talented photographer. But he did a review of the initial Instax printer, the SP One, some years ago, and he was the first to describe how he uses it in a professional context as a way to uh, help him during his street photography because it gives him a way to connect with his subjects very directly and to break the ice and to sort of uh, create situations where he can get better shots in a way that would otherwise not be possible, right? Even if, you know, you're showing things on a phone, it's just, it's not, it's not the same interaction. So right. I, I think that this is, uh, you know, it has potential to be used in professional contexts. You just have to... Uh, you know, be a little imaginative about it. So that's, uh, yeah, that's the Polaroid Pop, which uh, 
will come out sometime later in 2017. Right on. Yeah. And on the Fuji train, we may as well mention that they are releasing not new cameras, but new colors of cameras. This was oh. something that we... <laughs> <laughs> we kind of expected because they did the same thing with the uh, the X-T1 and so on and so forth. So there's now a silver version of the X-T2 and a very beautiful graphite version of the X-Pro2. Personally, I think that the graphite looks much better than the silver. Really? I disagree. Really? No, yeah. I, to, to me, the, uh, the, the graphite, look, well, it looks more different. I think the silver looks more like other cameras, uh, whereas the graphite looks a little more like its own thing. Oh yeah, that's fair enough. Um, yeah. But quite frankly, I would just keep my black one. If if I had the, the choice, I don't think that I would switch to one of the silvery ones. I, I think I just stick to the, the pure black. Yeah, that's probably what I would do as well. The black X-T2 is just beautiful. Yeah. And I just, I've never, I mean, the silver is fine because it reminds me more, even more of classic film cameras, which is just a, a look that I particularly like. Uh, but I still prefer the black. I, I would say the graphite, however, I don't. I don't really get. I don't really enjoy the, the graphite XT two was XT one. Sorry, was meh. Like last year when it was yeah. announced, I, I didn't yeah. really care for it. And this graphite X Pro two is. I guess it's nice, but. If, if I was given a choice, I would go for the black one any day of the week. Yeah, same here. And in even like setting aside the cosmetics of it, um, especially if you shoot free, um, free street photography or uh, any other kind of uh, shooting scenario where you want to be a little more discreet, I find that the uh, the silver cameras attract a lot more attention. My, my X100S was silver. Right. And uh, I got asked about it a lot like a lot because it, it just looks like an interesting old camera. And, you know, people say, oh, is that a film camera? And it's a, no, it's a Fuji and blah, blah, blah. Like it's a good conversation starter. But if you're trying to uh, be subtle about taking photos, that's not the camera to use for that. The, the black ones, people just don't notice because it's harder to discern right. details, I think. And it's, it's just this sort of uh, generic camera shape. Um, and that just is easier to ignore. I guess I'm just cheeky when I'm taking pictures on the streets because I don't care about that. I don't care yeah, I if people so. notice my camera. <laughs> I, I literally stay like two feet away from my subject and I click away. I, I don't, I don't care. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's anyway, that's just a, a consideration. Um, I think that there are more interesting Fuji announcements coming this month. So we'll, we'll wait and see what, uh, Oh, you think, or, you know, well, I suspect you have an informed guess, right? You're, you're making an informed guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's, that's that. Um, I think I wanted to wrap up with a um, with an article that Thomas Fitzgerald um, wrote on his blog recently. He basically put out a, a wish list for Lightroom in 2017, and I think that despite our various explorations with other um, processing environments and cataloging environments and things like that, we are still pretty resolutely Lightroom users. Yeah, uh, all three of us. And so it's it's kind of near and dear to our hearts what happens with Lightroom as a product. And uh, I just figured we'd cruise over his his uh, suggestions and, and see if we wanted to weigh in with some of our own. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, I'm I'm impressed that he managed to fit all of his suggestions and wish lists and in just a single post because, boy, <laughs> are there are there a few of them. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, we could spend an hour just just talking about that. But um, so his first one, he, he wishes that there would basically be um, functional parity between the um, Creative Cloud version of Lightroom and the standalone version. So if uh, if you're not aware to this day, you're still able to purchase a standalone copy of Lightroom, which theoretically is the same version, but it really isn't. Um, and in fact, the the uh, functionality gulf between the Creative Cloud version and the standalone version is uh, growing <laughs> wider and wider. So uh, it, it's, I mean, clearly from Adobe's perspective, they prefer that people be on their subscription because it's sustainable income for them. And right. part of the promise of Creative Cloud as a, as a service was that they would be able to roll out updates more frequently. And I have to say to their credit, they have really done a very good job of that in general. They, they've released updates to um, to Lightroom and Photoshop and things like that more frequently than they were doing in the past. So that's, you know, I appreciate that as a as a subscriber. But if I were, um, you know, if, if I just had a standalone license, I would find the situation very frustrating. And I think realistically, I think that what they have to do is make a call. Either they stop selling a standalone copy or they just 
bring it up to parody somehow. Like it's just, it's a weird discrepancy. It just feels blatantly mean to yeah. leave the standalone people. Like I like don't- It feels dishonest even. Exactly. Like don't give them the option to buy a product that you know you're not going to support in the same way, right? If you promise them that they have an option, then it has to be an actual option. It's not like- you can, you know, spend money on a shitty version or just subscribe to the to the real one. Like that's not that's not really an option. So right. that's I think that's a good suggestion. I mean, it's a slippery slope, right? Because this feeds into the greater conversation of whether a standalone software purchase or a subscription model is what ultimately benefits the consumer the most. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I've always believed you cannot buy software based on the promise of future updates. If you buy an app or, or, or yeah, if you buy an application, it has to be because the current version is is good enough for you. Exactly. Yeah. Because because you never know what's going to happen, right? So in a way, I I get why Adobe thinks they can get away with this, but it still feels wrong. It's still dishonest, I would say, because I mean, to be perfectly honest, I was not aware that there was a discrepancy in features between the standalone version and the subscription version, because once I signed up for the subscription myself, I stopped just paying attention to the standalone version and that was that. Yep. But yeah, it doesn't it doesn't feel right. And it creates, I'm sure it creates uh, support issues for them uh, because if you have your user base split across different versions, that's, that's not good for you because <laughs> it doesn't let you advance the platform as as quickly right yeah and especially for a non you know technically savvy users the the conversation of like well but i have lightroom and it's like yeah but you don't have the right lightroom you've got the other lightroom so for your lightroom you've got to you know do these things instead or this your lightroom doesn't allow you to do that and it's just that's a, a a minefield of of complication that I think that Adobe would like to extricate themselves from entirely. And that's why, from my perspective, I think the more likely occurrence is that they just drop the standalone thing, especially because now the Photoshop and Lightroom bundle is so affordable. Uh, Like as a a subscription, I think that that's priced very intelligently and there's- It's a terrific deal. There's frequently deals on it and everything like that. That's that's just in no-brainer territory for me, at least, uh, it just, and I understand that there's philosophical reasons for not wanting to be a subscriber to software. That's something that is still taking some getting used to for a lot of people. But um, fundamentally, from Adobe's perspective, clearly that's the way that they make money. That's the way that they are able to sustain their business. And for all those reasons, I think that it would make more sense to drop the standalone rather than try and bring it up to parity and, and deal with that. Because then it's just confusing in a different way. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that was one of his requests. Um, the one that I like would throw most of my, if I, if I could get only one of these things, it would be this one. And it is that he's asking for improvements to the raw engine. Right. Absolutely. And he, he, he mentions a few, a few facets of it, like the, the sharpening algorithm and the fact that you don't have options, um, really to, to change between sharpening methods, which is something that basically every other development environment has, um, the fact that it doesn't do 32-bit um, floating point calculations internally for things, which again I, I can't imagine why. Uh, like lots of lots of um, room for improvement, basically. Um, yeah, and most of it feels like craft, like like just uh, legacy issues that haven't never been fixed, right? But that yeah. they, they've been that way for ages, and they just never put in the effort and the resources to fix them. Yeah. But I mean, this is the, you know, we're working with the 2012 version of their raw processing engine right now, you know, with, with updates, right. but basically it's the 2012 thing. So that that's, that's a long time and it, it really is overdue for an update. And I, that would be the one that I would vote for um, by far because it, it affects so much else, right? Like anytime that there's a discrepancy in the way that Lightroom handles files, that's something that a new, processing pathway could fix yeah uh and they've had enough time to develop that and to test it so i I would really like for them to roll that out whether it's with a new version like an entirely new version of lightroom or or what i don't really care but that's that's something that i think needs to happen hopefully we'll see it in 2017 i i don't really like there's no indication right and this is the the frustrating thing uh is you kind of have no idea when you're going to get a big feature update or just a bug fix release right. when Lightroom gets an update. Because sometimes we get entirely new features. We got the dehaze stuff and all of that sort of out of nowhere. And other times it's just, you know, extra camera support for Adobe Camera Raw and things like that. So uh, it's hard to say. 
but I'd like to see that. Yeah, it's sort of like a like a black hole where you, you never see what's going to happen. So, I mean, but it, it, it makes sense because that's also business savvy on their part. Like they don't want to give away features before they actually release them. So on some level, I can understand that. But yeah, it, you're, you're absolutely right that it would be, for the customers, it would be much better <laughs> to, to know what's coming. Yeah, and similarly, he uh, he would like to see a, a rewrite of the library view, um, mostly because of performance reasons. And uh, having just, I've been testing on one photo raw, and seeing how fluid that is in terms of browsing, in terms of just just navigating between you know the development mode and the browsing mode, and and it's just it's a night and day difference. And I would really like to see Lightroom performing that well because. It's, it's sort of a, an ongoing joke now that Lightroom is just slow and, and for various reasons, you have to throw way more hardware at it than seems reasonable to get it to perform decently. Right. And to me, that's always been uh, annoying because it's not re- like, comparatively speaking, you shouldn't need a monstrously powerful computer just to get basic fluid performance out of an image editing environment. Like it just, it, there's, <laughs> I, I don't know, it doesn't seem justified to me. Yeah, it's lazy development. Absolutely, they're just uh, making use of resources. Like there are enough resources to spare, and most times that's true. But when you uh, you take into account the case of people with old machines or uh, or machines that are doing something else at the same time, uh, you you cannot just hog all the resources of the system for your app. That's just not responsible. That's not being a good OS citizen, and yeah. that's one of my biggest gripes with. Uh, with Lightroom and Photoshop, but Lightroom in particular, I think is a, a bit worse in that respect. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that just in the interest of fairness, we should say that really no other company is faced with the same development challenges as Adobe when it comes to trying to do this, because it's all well and good for On One Photo Raw and Affinity and all these other newcomers to appear on the scene and have a freshly built app that, you know, it's like a ground up rebuild for modern technologies. And of course it performs better and blah, 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 but they don't have any legacy users to support. They don't have decades worth of code to, to refactor and deal with. Like they're, they're coming at the problem from a very privileged um, place and so for Adobe to do something similar is very difficult and, and in general for a, a bigger company like this to do it is is difficult um, and it's not exactly like it's historically been received very well when companies do I'm I'm thinking right. here of Apple and Final Cut right I mean that yeah was, yeah absolutely that, that was what they did essentially is they said okay look we can keep uh, you know putting lipstick on the pig or we can just get a new pig and they did and you know Final Cut Pro X was a ground up rewrite it took a while for it to uh, get to where it is today, but it is unquestionably a better piece of software than Final Cut Pro 7 ever was and and a different way of working. And, uh, you know, I'm a fan of it, but even objectively speaking, it, it was a necessary move for them to be able to sustain that, that application. And I mean, it, it would be great to see Adobe do something similar with Lightroom, but I also think that that would be, uh, that would get a lot of negative press for them, especially because, people hate them already for the whole subscription thing. Like people are really still very, very upset about that. But I think they're getting the message recently because every review of the MacBook Pros that I've seen that focused on video editing made it a point to emphasize the difference between editing on Final Cut Pro and editing on Adobe Premiere. Yeah, well, And yeah. Final Cut Pro on the new MacBook Pros just smokes Adobe Premiere. Like the performance is at least twice as fast. Yeah. And when you're editing 4K video, that's important. So I think they're paying attention, or at least I hope they're paying attention. Uh, but this might make them see the benefits of doing the work and doing a full rewrite when it's time to do so. And I think now is the time for Lightroom and Photoshop. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, the other stuff that he's got is, you know, depending on your workflow, it'll be more or less important. He's, he's talking about improvements to synchronization between Lightroom Mobile and Lightroom Desktop, which is something that that I would certainly appreciate. I would like, I mean, it's not even big things. Like for example, you can't currently synchronize a smart collection to Lightroom mobile for reasons that escape me, you know? So it's little low hanging fruit like that, that would be, that would be appreciated. We also talked on the presets episode about how cool it would be if your desktop collection of Lightroom presets synchronized to Lightroom mobile so that you could apply them on the go. I mean, that's again, the kind of thing that would be amazing. And, 
it, it seems obvious. That one in particular, we know they're working on, so that's promising. But there's just a lot of these little um, enduring detail problems that seem pretty small to us. I'm sure that they're not small, right? Because otherwise they would have fixed them. Right. Um, but there, there's so many little things that it's difficult for them to know how to prioritize it. Um, but I just, I, I think there's a, there's a sense of frustration that, um, yes, there's a lot of things they could be working on and yes, you have to prioritize, but it just feels like none of it is getting done. And because there's no transparency, because there's no hint that, yeah, we're rewriting Lightroom guys, like bear with us. Uh, cause if we knew that it would be okay. Like, yes, it, it's going to take some time. Just give them time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that would be fine. But they they obviously can't communicate that. So in the meantime, we're stuck kind of, we're stuck kind of waiting for something to happen and basically nothing is. So right. it, it's frustrating. And I understand you know, these wish list articles, on, on the one hand, they seem kind of like a shot in the dark. But on the other hand, I know that people from Adobe and, and uh, other companies do come across the same articles. I mean, they they are just normal human beings with similar yeah. <laughs> Internet habits. So uh, it, it helps to voice these opinions sometimes, which is why I wanted to bring it up on air. I don't know. How, how do you feel about Lightroom right now? Like, I mean, I, th- I think it's worth discussing what could be improved and what downright just doesn't work. And there are plenty of those things in Lightroom and Photoshop today. I'm a much uh, much heavier Lightroom user than I am a Photoshop user, but I still do enter into Photoshop quite frequently when I have to do more in-depth edits to a picture. And that's one of the things that I would like to see improve, like the whole workflow, the integration between Lightroom and Photoshop, because sometimes it feels like an extra step that maybe shouldn't be there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's reasonably well thought out as it is right now, but I think there's room for improvement there. And I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if the answer is just improve the current situation where you just take the file from Lightroom to Photoshop and then on your way back, you have a completely different file that, by the way, is a lot heavier. Uh, that's something that always bothered me a lot. But yeah, well, I don't know if the answer is that or, or if the answer is just that Lightroom gains more capabilities and little by little makes Photoshop unnecessary for most things. Uh, I believe that's the path Adobe uh, Adobe is on because Lightroom keeps improving and it keeps earning new features and new capabilities. But um, to be honest, I don't know if that's the right answer. Yeah, it's hard to say. Maybe the right answer is to actually remove features from Lightroom and have it be a nimble, uh, basic editor and then improve the interaction between both apps so that the when you need to do more serious or more deep edits or deeper edits, you just jump into Photoshop in a very seamless way and all your tools are there or your features are there. Uh, I don't know. I just think the current situation is like they couldn't decide if it was worth keeping the two apps or they couldn't decide which one to emphasize over the other. Uh, right now, there's a lot of ambiguity there, I think. Yeah. And and I would hope, I would appreciate some clarification uh, from Adobe uh, some some clarity of vision like like I shouldn't have to wonder right I shouldn't have to wonder which app is the right one for a particular job it should be obvious yeah and and right now that is acutely a problem and I think it's a consequence of them having again this this legacy thing and so many different workflows to account for because let's not forget that Adobe Bridge is still a thing like that you know, right. there's a lot of people who use Adobe Bridge instead of Lightroom and their entire process is basic edits in Adobe Camera Raw within Bridge and then out to Photoshop for any more serious things. And that's it. And it's, you know, Bridge is a glorified file browser, but it's it's a very good one. It's very nimble. It's very, you know, it's perfect for that kind of thing. But it's not just for photographers. It's for all kinds of different um, image and file assets. So, right. you know, that's a workflow that they have to take into account. Are they going to remove Bridge? Uh, you know, with, is that the approach? Probably not, because Bridge has value to a bunch of other people. Um, right now, my sense is that they're pushing Photoshop further and further away from photographers because um, we've seen them trying to build in new functionality and new um, workspaces that favor Photoshop taking over for, um, what was it called, Fireworks? Right, yeah. Uh, the the interface design tool, right? Because now with uh, with tools like Sketch out there, people are obviously showing a lot of affinity for these uh, very, very fast, very um, straightforward prototyping and design tools. And I think that Adobe would love to see 
Photoshop become their answer to that. But and it might well be because it just does so many things. Like yeah, it's, it's, it's such it's, an insanely powerful app that you can do pretty much whatever you can set your mind to with it. Which works in its favor, but it, it also makes it a very difficult app to to position within an ecosystem like that. And it's yeah, I mean, I agree with you that I think a bit of um, a bit of focus on their part would be appreciated. Right now, it seems like they keep introducing new apps and new betas and new things. But none of the old stuff is going away. None of it is. None of the stuff that seems to be uh, made redundant is actually being removed. And I understand that the, it's it's painful to remove stuff. Obviously, you don't you don't want to do that casually. But as a business uh, and as a consumer trying to understand which apps I need and which ones you know are worth and and how I can pay for them and everything, it's just getting. Uh, it's getting close to what Microsoft Office was until recently, right? Where you had all of these different options and bundles and things. And are you a business? And are you an enterprise instead of a business? Or right. are you a home business or a small? Like, it's just too many options and it didn't really make much sense. So Yeah, and it's really not a good place to be as a company. Yeah, exactly. So I, I agree with you. I think that I would like to see Adobe streamline a little bit. But fundamentally, my biggest problems with Lightroom are just that while it remains kind of the best collection of compromises it's not as good at image editing as other things it's probably not as good at cataloging as other things it's just kind of the best thing that does all of the stuff that a photographer right. needs right so just seeing them improve upon that core functionality even if they don't build out the photoshop integration more even if they literally just focus on what lightroom currently does and just make it faster make it more reliable and address these little low-hanging fruit, some of which we mentioned, some of which, again, there's there's Thomas's article, and we'll have a link in the show notes. Um, there's a lot of work to be done on it, and, and I hope that in 2017 we'll see some meaningful progress there. Yeah, me too. Me too. There's definitely room for improvement, so we'll see. It's only January, after all. I mean, the year has only started. Yeah. Let's, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They, they still have time to put some, something interesting out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs>